Hello and welcome to Spam 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 Humbug, the official, if you want to call it that, podcast of the Ultima Codex. I came to the decision to start a podcast, I think, primarily because there's just so much news that I try and cover, so much news that I'd like to cover. A lot of things that kind of happen at the periphery of Ultima or that aren't really quite related to Ultima or tie back to it in some more obscure way that I just, I don't unfortunately have time to post in detail about on the site anymore, just, you know, because of life changes, I think more than anything else. So I got actually back into listening to podcasts, uh, as a, as a result of changing how I commute to work. Um, I used to take the bus to work, now I drive to work, and I find that it's sometimes very difficult to stay awake on the drive, just because um, I don't always get enough sleep, we've got a little baby in the house, and music doesn't always cut it, the regular beat actually doesn't help keep a guy awake when he's driving down a highway, so I got into listening to podcasts, and a few dozen episodes later, I started to form the idea that, you know, this might not be a bad way to relate stuff that I just don't have time to talk about on the codex anymore, at least not directly. And then I can kind of link to different pieces of content or link to the different things that are discussed um, in the show notes, if you want to call them that, for each podcast. And hey, I mean, if it gets the Codex a little bit more exposure, if it gets Ultima a little bit more exposure, (laughs) I'm not going to complain. Tonight's format may wind up being atypical. I don't know. Um, Ideally, I would like to see this become something that has group discussions. Um, Different people coming on, whether it's, you know, the fan project developers or... I don't know, if we're lucky enough, maybe we'll get someone from Portalarium on board or Artcraft. That's all for the future. For now, for tonight at least, uh, it's just going to be me talking and just about a handful of things, some of which I've been sitting on for a while and some of which I've been sitting on for not quite so long. To kick it off, um, I don't know if you're a member of the Ultima Dragons Facebook group, If you are, you may have seen this argument go down. If you're not, basically I posted on the Facebook group, this was a while ago, back in February, posted about the addition of the first scheduled NPC to the game, Abella the Barmaid in Braemar. She uh, is the first NPC in Shroud of the Avatar to vary her routine based on the time of day. She goes home at night. It was added to Shroud as a proof of concept for release 15, their 15th monthly pre-alpha release of the game. 
but it is something that Portalarium hopes to expand upon very much moving forward to make the world feel more alive. And the discussion was interesting, but at some point someone quipped that, you know, the next step they had to take then was to get rid of the over-the-shoulder view and go back to a party-based third-person view. Wasteland 2 was given as an example. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, actually, when I play Shroud of the Avatar, I'll often position the camera up and above my character, zoom out as much as I can, and I'll play it isometrically, more or less. There was a bothersome trend that started to emerge in the discussion, though. Um, Again, even though I, you know, I, I will play Shroud with an isometric view as much as I can, if nothing else, because, you know, it bumps up the frame rate. I mean, sometimes when you... (laughs) when you've got the settings dialed all the way up and you pitch down to the horizon, not every graphics card can handle that optimally. But at the same time, I don't get the... I like isometric in RPGs, but I don't see it necessarily as the be-all and end-all of RPG design. It's really, to my mind, one option among several in terms of setting up how the player interacts with the world. Ultima Underworld, Oblivion, Skyrim, these are great RPGs um, that feature first-person views or third-person over-the-shoulder views. I think there's a little bit of elitist snobbery, if you'll bear with me in saying so, when it comes to, you know, this insistence that only an authentic RPG or an authentic RPG is, you know, only isometric a la Baldur's Gate or Planescape Torment. More bothersome, though, a little later in the discussion, um, was the... Was an assertion was made that you know three very important mechanics were sacrificed with the use of the third person view, um, the tactical battlefield view, turn based or pause based combat, and party based play. And I got to thinking about that because. And I got to thinking that, you know, this doesn't seem... If we make those necessary criteria for an RPG, we're actually in a somewhat absurd position as Ultima fans uh, in that we would have to assert that something like Dragon Age Inquisition is a superior RPG to Ultima 6 or Ultima 7, And in particular, that Ultima 7 is scarcely an RPG at all, since it really doesn't have any of those features apart from the party. Which, to my mind again, seems a little bonkers. I don't know... Frankly, I just, I don't get that mode of thinking. I mean, certainly... 
isometric, top-down, tactical combat. These are nice things to find in a game that has them. Would I agree that they are necessary features in the RPG genre? Um, Not at all. And I say that as an Ultima 6 fan, which has turn-based combat, which has kind of that top-down tactical view, I guess, which which definitely does have a party. Um, to my mind, I think RPGs, the more important features of RPGs, especially coming from a background in the Ultima series, would be the, the world building, the experience of the world, the sense that you have come into this world as a character to play a role. So to my mind, things like, well, like NPC schedules or like the ability to manipulate the environment or uh, like the ability to have meaningful conversations with NPCs. And I mean, Meaningful is kind of a loaded term, obviously, that changes as RPGs advance, you know, conversation systems advance, more depth is possible. But that said, you can go back to a game like Ultima 5, and there is a great deal of meaning to be found, even in the relatively more simplistic conversations in that game. So, yeah, it was just, it was an interesting thing to encounter, and, uh, I think the real tragedy was that, you know, we get into these modes of thinking where people, people who were, you know, particular fans of a particular game approach the idea of an RPG, approach the genre with a very specific way of thinking. And, you know, any game that doesn't conform to that specific way of thinking, any game that doesn't have that feature set, isn't a true RPG. Which, whatever. I mean, if that's how people need to think, then that's how people need to think. But I don't think there's any reason that we need to agree with that. I certainly, you can make the argument that, you know, one game is a more in-depth RPG than another, but that's not really saying the same thing as, you know, one game is a true RPG, whereas another is not, and please turn in your RPG fan membership card for even thinking so. And unfortunately, you even see a little bit of this thinking sometimes in the Ultima fandom. You see this with, you know, at least to my mind, I've always had the frustration that any new game that wants to claim the label of Ultima is almost inevitably going to be evaluated against Ultima 7, which many people regard as kind of the pinnacle of the series in terms of, well, especially the world simulation is is a really uh, big example of where Ultima 7 did arguably excel. Although you couldn't ride the horses, which you could in Ultima 6. 
And, I mean, sure, if we're talking about a AAA Ultima, you know, some new studio is going to invest millions upon millions upon millions of dollars making, you know, a new AAA full-bore Ultima, then certainly a comparison to Ultima 7 might be warranted because if you don't have some of the features that made Ultima 7 Ultima 7 in this brand new AAA attempt at Ultima, then yeah, I mean, there's you've arguably failed to to claim the mantle of the series successfully. But by the same token, um, we saw bits and pieces of that even with things like Ultima Forever, which were which was always intended to be a more uh, simplified game that harkened back to a little bit of an earlier time. In the Ultima series, you know, it was a homage to Ultima 4. Ultima 4 really didn't have a lot of world interactivity by comparison. None to speak of, really. That really started to come in with Ultima 5. So, you know, I suppose that we are guilty of that in the Ultima fandom, too. And it's a mode of thinking that I think we could stand to be without because fundamentally it's a very uncharitable way to think about it. And, um, I don't think it really gives games their fair chance to be evaluated for what they are. Anyways, uh, somewhat relatedly, um, just yesterday, uh, news, something else I posted to the Ultima Dragons group regarding Shroud of the Avatar reaching its sixth millionth crowdfunded dollar, uh, which is a pretty big milestone in, you know, in its ongoing project. I mean, it's kind of interesting that if you look at Shroud and you look at another RPG that was crowdfunded at the same time, Torment, Tides of Numenera, um, Actually, let me just pull up the Numenera website to make sure. But the last time I looked at this, um, yeah. So, you know, Torment, Tides of Numenera, uh, made around $4 million on Kickstarter, if I recall correctly. Um, and its current crowdfunding total is $4,837,056. Okay, whereas uh, Shroud of the Avatar, which is crowdfunded at exactly the same time, um, or almost at the same time, they were offset uh, by a week or so, um, raised a little shy of $2 million on Kickstarter, and is now up to well over $6 million. Um, and, you know, even there... <laughs> Even there, uh, a slightly, in that conversation, a slightly different form of snobbery reared its head in that, um, you know, people started to disparage crowdfunded games in general and, uh, you know, basically say that, you know, well, wake me when the game looks like they've spent $6 million on it and nobody is... You know, there isn't really a Kickstarter project that has met commercial or critical success yet. Um, A few examples were thrown out to counter that assertion. I could cite Republic by Camouflage. Um, FTL was mentioned. 
Shadow Run. Uh, and of course, Pillars of Eternity drops next week, and that is, I would assume, going to be a pretty big thing. Um, Divinity Original Sin was on Kickstarter. Um, that's a little bit of a different case, but even so. Um, it's just... It's a different kind of that sort of elitist thinking, but at the same time, it's um, still a kind of elitist thinking in that, you know... Sure, Shroud has a very different visual look than, say, a Skyrim. Um, then again, it's being built on a shoestring budget compared to what Skyrim was probably built for. Six million dollars sounds like a lot, but if you actually um, start scribbling down math on a napkin or something like that, it turns out to be not too, too much. I mean, I don't know what Portalarium's monthly expenses are. I can really only guess and grasp at straws. I've heard tell that, you know, Obsidian Entertainment um, spends about a million dollars a month. And if memory serves, Portalarium is about a quarter of the size of that studio. So, you know, if you do some math uh, with the assumption that Portalarium... Uh, you know, costs about a quarter million dollars a month to run. Um, there was another interview that Richard Garriott did where I think he said that at the start of the Shroud of the Avatar Kickstarter, um, which was in March two years ago, uh, Portalarium had three to four months of, you know, operating budget left. So, I mean, let's assume that they had a million dollars left and they were spending 250000 a month, and then they've earned now $6 million on top of that. If you do a little math, $7 million in total, divided by $250,000 a month, it gives you 28 months, and the Kickstarter was 24 months ago. Um, and then, you know, you add things like... And that's, you know, just assuming the raw costs of running the studio, and you have to assume, I suppose, that the costs of Unity licensing and assets and everything else are built into that hardware as well. So, $6 million really isn't a ton of money when it comes to developing a game like this. Um, so yes, it's not going to look like Skyrim, but it is worth noting that, you know, the visual look of the game has accelerated by leaps and bounds with the addition of uh, Abe Robertson to the team in particular. He's been doing some amazing work. So, yeah, I mean, we could argue that Shroud of the Avatar has a way to go, but I'm not sure that, you know, taking the elitist route there again, casting aspersions on all Kickstarter projects, um, is necessarily the right way to go. Moving on to a happier topic. This one's been sitting in my pocket list since January. Um, it was an article that appears on io9, um, which is one of the Gawker network of sites. Um, it deals with mostly science fiction, but also some fantasy. And they had, uh, they ran this article called 10 Rules for Making Better Fantasy Maps. Now, Ultima didn't come up in the article, um, but certainly I think looking at their list, um, the maps of Ultima, uh, the maps of the Ultima series, the cloth maps, definitely 
followed most, if not all, of these rules. Uh, in order, they were, you know, number one, understand how your map tells a story. I think it's very obvious that um, most, or all, really, of the Ultima maps, <clears throat> maybe not Ultima 8s, um, were, you know, they pulled that off very handily. Uh, you know, the quote here is, you look at a map and this area is waiting for you to go to it. Look at all this land. The the very act of creating a map, it's like taking a snapshot. You're freezing it in time. Um, and, you know, where whereas some maps, some maps in games and fantasy worlds can be come static uh, some maps go far far beyond that <laughs> they can be a, an instant introduction the article says to the world we're visiting um and certainly i mean that was true of of just about any ultima map in ultima 2 uh it's it's essential to have the cloth map to understand how the time gates work in ultima 6 7 um lots of landmarks to be found simply by looking at the map and, and understanding that wow the map actually you know comports to the in-game geography second rule is you know, always keep the viewer in mind um, that is to say you know keep in mind that maps are a way of conveying information the viewer needs to be able to understand the map now i guess we could maybe argue that you know for those of us who aren't necessarily fluent in runic, Ultima might violate this rule a little bit, but at the same time, um, once you become uh, familiar with Britannia in any incarnation, uh, looking at the map for each successive Ultima game, even if, again, you don't read runic fluently, um, becomes trivially simple. And... Yeah... Rule three, study real geography. Um, certainly, I think Britannia was always, you know, uh, constructed in a way that uh, kept geography and geology firmly in mind. Um, and since then, the fans have done some really wonderful things with it. There's that actually very excellent um, GIS map of Britannia that was created uh, a while back, and then Rustic Dragon used it for the Hearth of Britannia cloth maps. I'll have to make sure to post a link to that in the show notes. Rule four, pick your palette. Uh, again, certainly true of the Ultima maps. Each of them, you know, has a very different uh, artistic feel to it. They use a very particular color palette uh, from <laughs> the somewhat wild green of the Ultima 6 map to, you know, the very... <coughs> um, earthen tones of say the ultima 7 map to the you know more saturated colors of the ultima 9 map number five look at the work of real world cartographers i don't know if the artists who created the ultima cloth maps um did this but again i would assume so i mean the maps certainly adopt a lot of visual conventions from some of the great historical uh, cartographers so you know i would assume that there was a, a much attention paid to history there rule six break out the rectangle break out of the rectangle uh <laughs> and uh you know the question here is you know so when you're drawing a country or the comment here is when you're drawing a 
continent or country or city, just stop and ask yourself, am I drawing it this shape because that's the shape of my paper? Rethink the shapes and angles of your world, and remember that just because the paper's rectangular, it doesn't mean your fantasy continent has to be rectangular too. Now, I suppose it could be argued that the arrangement of islands in and around, you know, (laughs) that the arrangement of Britannia and the various islands um, do ultimately create a rectangular-like shape, and I guess they would have to because ultimately they do still have to fit on the rectangular or square map. But the main feature is easily Britannia, and Britannia certainly isn't there to fit into a box. Um, what did Paul Barnett call it? He called it the croissant of joy, and I think that's a very good way to look at it. Rule 7, consider embellishments, but don't overload your map with them. Um, basically, take the opportunity to use the map to convey more than just you know pure geographical information. Uh, rule 8, try different types of maps. Not every map has to show a continent. I guess that could possibly be true in the case of Ultima, but I'll note, too, that you know if we expand our thinking a little bit, I mean, we have maps of the entirety of planet Mars, we have maps of the abyss, we have maps of the dark path that we could point to. Um, There were definitely different types of maps created for Ultima, although for the most part we're looking at the continent of Britannia. Seek out feedback? Well, I don't know if that one's really applicable, but I would assume that a lot of internal discussion went on at Origin. Uh, and, you know, the last rule is don't rush, spend as much time on your map as it needs. Again, I think that's something that, you know, is more directed to um, people who are looking to create these fantasy maps for their own realms, you know, at home, whether for a D&D campaign or a game they're working on. Um, but I would assume, again, that this principle was applied at origin. So, 10 rules for making better fantasy maps, and uh, I definitely think that it's easy to relate most, if not all, of those principles to the Ultima Cloth maps. Um, they were always a very integral part of the Ultima experience, uh, so much so that, you know, even with things like Ultima Forever, I mean, Mythic made sure that they found a way to get some cloth maps made. Um, that is an essential part of Ultima. And not just that, but the map as a component of the game. You know, it's not merely a decorative object. It's actually something that is useful for navigating the game. Um, In some cases, you could argue it's essential for navigating the game. Okay, moving on. I uh, I don't know, I haven't really decided on a length for these podcasts, but... um, Last item for tonight, there's a new game available on GOG, um, really doesn't have anything to do with Ultima per se, if anything, it's a, a homage of the Zelda Windwalker game, but it's called Oceanhorn, Monster of the Uncharted Seas. Um, this began life as an iOS game, it has since been ported to Windows, um, developed by a company called Cornfox and Brothers and it's it's definitely worth a pickup and play. It's not a particularly complicated RPG. You know, the mechanics are are fairly straightforward and easy to understand. Again, it started as a mobile game, so they'd kind of have to be um but it's um uh, the the artwork is just beautiful. The gameplay is fairly entertaining. 
combat system's pretty decent. Um, and just, it's, it's a very lovingly done piece that you really, <laughs> um, really is worth checking out. Uh, it's actually on sale at GOG right now. They got it 20% off, so it'll run you at 12 US dollars or 11.99. And I think for now, that is where we're going to stop for tonight. Um, we'll see if this idea of mine takes off. We will see if more people want to join in. And even if it's just me, I will see you next week. 